0: morning we want to continue our study in Colossians, so let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn there with me, and uh, we will be encouraged by the word today. You will be helped by following along in your Bible, Colossians chapter 1. Living and working with other Christians guarantees real problems. And yet sometimes that can be all that we focus on. We can miss the forest from the trees. We can focus too much on the problems and on what needs to be fixed and not focus on the positive work that God has done. Paul here is writing from a Roman prison, and Epaphras has brought a report of the church at Colossae to Paul so that Paul can understand what's going on there. And later on in the letter, Paul is going to address the problems in the church. So we don't want to just say, well, let's just be Pollyannic about it and just act like these problems aren't there. He's going to address the problems. But he begins, before those solemn rebukes and, and real warnings, he begins with uh, not with a criticism and a correction for the church, but rather he begins with a reassurance of their faith and thanksgiving to God for his goodness. Now, Paul doesn't always do that. Um, In Galatians chapter 1, for example, he begins by saying, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. So he just starts out right at the beginning and says, this is not good. But here in Colossians, he wants to not begin with the problems and, and the criticisms, but rather with reassurance. And he does that by telling the people what he thanks God for what it is about them that he's thankful to God. And so let's take a look at the text together. I'll read it beginning in verse 3, Colossians chapter 1. This is the Word of God. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So in this text we see that, that we should praise God because the gospel you know is the true gospel that saved you. We all should praise God because the gospel that you know is the gospel that saved you. And he's going to show that in two ways. And in the first part of his prayer of thanksgiving, he's going to say that the gospel that they know is the gospel that saved them. And then he's going to say that the gospel they know is the gospel, is the gospel that is true. It's the true gospel. And he's going to show how that connects with the gospel that's been preached all over the world. And so here's a reason for us to give thanks to God, thanksgiving to God, because of the faith of our fellow believers. Because the gospel that they have received is the one that saved them. So first... The gospel you know is the gospel that saved you. Verses 3-5. through The gospel you know is the gospel that saved you. It results in Paul's thanksgiving and praise to God. In verse 3, he says, We give thanks to God. Now this phrase here that begins his prayer of thanksgiving really is the main subject of the sentence. Now in our text, we have more than one sentence, but... But in in the Greek translation, or in the the Greek, in the original, it's actually one sentence. Uh, It looks like we have a semicolon that connects verses 6 and 7. But in the Greek, it's all one sentence. So in a sentence, you have one main idea, and then everything else supports it. Here's the main idea, verse 3. We give thanks to God. That's the main idea. He wants to get across at the very beginning of the letter, we give thanks to God. And so we could ask the question, well, what is it that you give thanks to God for? Why are you giving thanks to God? And that's what he's going to unfold for us in the rest of the text. And I've already indicated what I think he's thanking God for, and that is that they have accepted the true gospel. The gospel that they know is the true gospel. It's the one that has saved them. And this gospel in verses 4 and 5 is grounded in Christ. The gospel you know is grounded in Jesus Christ. He says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now this thanks that he gives in verse 3 is a constant thanks. It's every time I pray for you, that every time I think about you and pray for you, I'm giving thanks to God for the gospel that has come to you. And probably what he means there is very similar to what he's going to say in verse 9, that, that he's saying that I'm constantly, I have not ceased praying for you. It probably doesn't mean that he's going 24 hours a day or even 16 hours a day praying for them, but rather that as he regularly prays for them, this is what he's praying about. And so in verses 9 through 14, we'll see what that is, but that'll be next week. But but for now, he's saying, whenever I pray for you, I thank God for you. So as I regularly think about you and pray about you perhaps in his weekly or daily prayer he's saying I thank God for you and and specifically notice the first word in verse 4 it is since well why are you thanking God for us Paul and the reason for Paul's gratefulness to God is because their faith is grounded in Jesus Christ and this genuine faith that they have the genuine salvation that they have is seen in two ways do you see that in verse 4 Because since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. So the expression of their salvation is their faith and their love. They have faith in Jesus Christ and they have love for all the saints. This is an indication, a mark of a true Christian. Someone who has faith in Jesus Christ. He believes that Jesus is the Son of God, the one who came to save people from their sins. And that he is the only means by which we can come to God. That's a mark of a true Christian. And also, it's a person in verse 4 who has love for all the saints. That they love other believers. The reality of the Colossians' salvation is seen in their continuing faith and their ongoing love. Friends, this is the essence of the gospel. Here's how Paul states it in Galatians 5 6. He says, In Jesus Christ, the only thing that counts, is faith working through love. So when it comes to our salvation and the expression of it, the only thing that matters is do we believe in Jesus Christ and is that expressed in our love for other people? Now, where does this faith and love come from? What is the source of this faith and love? And that's what Paul answers in verse 5. He says, "...because of the hope laid up for you in heaven." So why are the Colossians persevering in faith in Jesus Christ and love for all the saints? because of the hope that they have in heaven. This hope is is not just any hope. It's not some hope that's anchored in the earth. Right? It's something that's laid up for them in heaven. So what's so special about a hope that's laid up in heaven? It's secure, right? No one can, can rob them of that hope. No one can take that away from them when we have our hearts, our treasures set up in heaven. And there's no moth or rust that can corrupt there. And when our hope is set in heaven, when our hope is stored in heaven, then it's grounded in what is real and what cannot be taken away. And that's what Paul's praising God for. He's praising God that he, they have a hope that is stored in heaven that results in their, verse 4, their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints. So Paul begins by... Letting them know that he is encouraged by the gospel that they know because it's the gospel that saved them. And so he thanks God for them. And he wants to, at the same time, reassure them of this hope. So in his thanksgiving, he doesn't come out and say, be assured that you're doing the right thing. He doesn't say that. But by implication, that's what he's saying. He's saying, because I'm thanking God for this, you can be sure that you're doing the right thing. So continue on in the faith. This is the true gospel. This is the gospel that saved you. But but secondly, it's the true gospel. In verses 5 through 8, the gospel you know is the true gospel. One of the challenges that the Colossians were facing was that that false teachers were, in chapter 2, verse 4, trying to delude them with persuasive arguments. These false teachers were trying to get them to accept a new gospel. And Paul wants them to know that what they have is sufficient. They already have the true gospel because, look at verse 5, the second part, it says, this hope that's laid up in heaven is of which you previously heard in the word of truth the gospel. So this is not just a gospel that came before the writing of Paul. It came even before the false teachers came into the church. He's saying, this is a gospel that you heard long before that. So hold on to this gospel. Don't let it go. That's what I'm thanking God, that you have the true gospel that you've previously heard. not something brand new that these people are saying, no, you need a higher knowledge. You need knowledge that only comes through us. You need the worship of angels, all these other things, these rituals. You have to perform these rituals. Paul's saying, no, don't accept their explanation of a true gospel Accept what is true, what you know to be true, what is previously heard, because this gospel is not new. Paul is thankful for that, that they have received this, as he says in verse 5, this word of truth. He's thankful that they have received this true gospel. And he wants to, again, by implication, encourage them to continue in it. In verse 6, The gospel you know is the universally proclaimed gospel. Here's how we can know. There's a couple of ways that we can know that this is a true gospel. It's the one that we previously heard, the one that we heard from the apostles, and that it's the one that's being received all over the world. Verse 6, "...which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing." gospel that you have is not a novelty. It's not like a cult that only our group knows what the truth of of being accepted by God is. It's something that's being accepted all over the world. It's being proclaimed all over the world. And Paul's saying, I'm thankful that you have that true gospel. And I would say, you to beware of anyone who claims that they have an exclusive gospel. That is that no one else outside of us can have this gospel unless they do it our way. The gospel you know is the gospel that is preached and received all over the world. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ and is given to us in the Word of God. And so we can go and check what people say about the gospel that they're preaching, Against what the apostles have said, against what Jesus has said. The gospel, you know, is universally pro- is the universally proclaimed gospel. Paul is thankful for that. Verse second part of verse six, Paul is thankful that the gospel that they know is the transforming gospel. It's the transforming gospel. So he says, just as in all the world, which is. Also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been in you also since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Here's another way to know that you have the true gospel. That it changes you. That it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing in your life. It's changing you for the better. It's making you more like Jesus Christ. That's how... Paul was encouraged with these believers because he had heard, while there were problems in the church at Colossae, he had heard a good report about, from Epaphras about what they were doing and that there was fruit that was increasing. Sure, there's always things, there are always things that need to be pruned, right? But, but he's thankful that, that there, are actually, there, there is actually fruit coming from their lives and that it was increasing. The true gospel is one that brings change. The gospel bears fruit in the lives that it, that it grips. You see, the true gospel is much more than a stamp of approval by God, although it's not less than that. The true gospel is more than just a ticket out of hell, although it's not less than that. The true gospel actually changes a person, doesn't it? It is life-changing. It results in fruit-bearing. In John 15, Jesus says that anyone who abides in Him, the vine, bears much fruit. There are only two kinds of branches. Those that abide in the vine and those that are cut off. Only two kinds of branches. Those that bear fruit and those that are dead. So if the gospel has reached us, then it transforms us. And here is a great mark for us. Here's a great way for us to evaluate our own lives and the lives of other believers when it comes to whether or not the gospel has affected us. And it is, does that person bear fruit? Is the gospel increasing in them? Because Titus 1 says... They profess to know God, but by their deeds deny Him. So see, I have God's approval. That's someone who's made a profession of faith, but by their deeds, there's no fruit. Right? The, the parable in Mark 4, where Jesus says there's all kinds of different soils. And some of the seed goes on the hard ground, and, and some on the shallow ground, and some on the thorny ground. And all of those seeds don't bear any fruit. So while they received the word, it didn't actually do anything of substance, did it? But then there's this fourth kind of soil, right? And it's the soil that, that where the seeds actually are are germinated, right? And they actually bear fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, all kinds of different people are going to hear my word. That's what the seed is. But there are only a certain kind of people are going to respond by bearing fruit. And that's the one in whom I give life. Right? And, and so we need to recognize that, that our lives must, must result in fruit bearing. And that's not something we can force to happen, right? just as we can't do that in our own trees at home to kind of pull fruit out or force them to grow. If it's a, it's a fruit tree, it will grow fruit. And what Jesus is saying... Uh, in, in John 15. And what Paul, I think, is expecting of the believers in Colossians 1 is that when a person receives the true gospel, it, tra- it transforms their lives. In uh, At the end of verse 6, it says, and understood the grace of God in truth. I think when he talking about the grace of god here is simply just describing the gospel If we want to describe the gospel in one word we could simply call it grace grace is at the heart of the gospel it is a gift of god right salvation is a gift of god that comes through the sacrifice and the resurrection of jesus christ the son of god and all of it comes by grace not by works not by anything that we do All of our salvation is of grace. And so he says, I know that you've received it. And so praise God for that. That this gospel has gripped you and it's transformed you. Then in verse 7, the gospel you know was faithfully proclaimed to you. The gospel you know was faithfully proclaimed to you. Just as you learned it, the gospel of grace, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who's a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. Another reason that the believers in Colossae could be sure that the gospel that they know is the true gospel is because Paul gives his authorization of the one who preached it. He's saying, listen, I'm a messenger of Jesus Christ. I'm an apostle. And what I'm telling you is on the authority that I have in Jesus Christ that this man is an effective and faithful servant of the Lord. And so when you heard that message from Epaphras, you were hearing a message from God. So this gospel that you've heard is faithfully proclaimed to you. Paul was not the one who planted the church in Colossae. It was likely Epaphras who led them to Christ and established this work. And so Paul wants to just commend them and encourage them. Don't be, don't be fearful that you know, maybe you've got some kind of cult or some sort of weird idea about what, what it is to be accepted before God. This man is coming on behalf of Jesus Christ, and you can be sure that what you heard was the true gospel. Don't buy into all these false teachers who are coming in and changing it. Paul was thankful that the gospel had been faithfully proclaimed to them. And then, finally, in verse 8, it goes along with what we saw in verse 6. The gospel that you know is the love-producing gospel, similar to what we saw with that it bears fruit. It's transforming. Verse 8, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Verse 6, the gospel bears fruit. Here we see what one of those fruit is. It's love. The gospel transforms lives so that it makes believers into new creations. So that old things are passed away. The hate that they once had towards God and others is now replaced by a love for God and others. And Paul's Paul saying the love that you have among all the saints is a beautiful thing to see because it shows to me, it shows to God, that you are truly His. So, let's think about some principles and then I think the main application of the text. Three principles. Number one, our hope is grounded in Christ. Our hope is grounded in Christ. Remember in verse 4 where it said, the faith that you have in Jesus Christ and the love that you have for all the saints springs from, verse 5, the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. Well, that hope is grounded in Jesus Christ. So can I encourage you this morning to remember the source of your salvation? That your salvation comes as a result of the work that God has done in your life and that that hope that you have is secured in heaven. It's like the anchor that we have in heaven that's steadfast and sure. Right? We don't set an anchor on something on the earth that's moving. It's not very helpful to have an anchor that, that causes us to move because it's moving. We have an anchor that's secured in the very throne room of God because Jesus Christ is there. And so fix your eyes on what is eternal. If Jesus is the hope of your salvation, if Jesus is the source of your salvation, then fix your eyes on Jesus and what is eternal. Paul's going to say that in chapter 3, verses 2 and 4. He's going to say, set your minds on things above where Christ is, seated. When He is revealed, you will also be revealed with Him in glory. Because of their faith, because the Colossians' faith, their hope was secure, Paul used the entire opening of his letter to thank God for their faith that sprung from their hope. Our hope is grounded in Christ, and so we must fix our eyes on Christ. Second principle we see here is that genuine salvation guarantees fruit. The expression of our salvation should be evident in the way that we talk and act, the way that we live, the way that we think. Can you say that that's true of you? Has the gospel changed you? Has it changed the way that you think about God? Has it changed you, the way that you think about God's commands for you? Are they burdensome? Or do you find them to be a delight? Can you say that, that your life is marked by the love of other believers? Can you say that your your confidence is is largely unshaken when it comes to the troubles that 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 face you? Because your hope is in God. The expression of our salvation should be evident in our fruit, in the way that we live and act. What about when other people look at you from our church? Do they know of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the believers, or are they left scratching their head? Hmm. I don't see any fruit there. What about people in other churches? I mean, this is what's going on here, if we think about it, with regard to this letter, right? Paul, who's not a part of the Colossian church, is hearing a report from their pastor, apparently Epaphras, who's saying, one of the things I want you to know about them is the fruit that's being born in their lives. And so, just imagine this for a second. What what if one of the members of our church gives a report of our church to another believer from another church? So somebody from our church goes to another church and gives a report of what's going on here, would it ever come up in the conversation that there's any fruit that's being born in the lives of the people or specifically in the lives in your life? Is there anything positive that they can say about the fruit that's being born or or is it... is it dead? I mean, are we are we bearing fruit because our hope is firmly founded in Jesus Christ who is eternal genuine salvation guarantees fruit Thirdly the grace that saved the grace that saved you is the grace that transforms you So you might be thinking well I'm, I'm trying right I'm trying to bear fruit and what I would encourage you this morning is that, that the way that you get that grace to be able to bear fruit is the same way you got the grace to be saved initially. The message of Colossians is that Christ secures our salvation from beginning to middle to the end. Christ secures our salvation all the way through. And so what we must do is not ever rest on our laurels. Well, I was already saved. You know, I was saved when I was a kid or I was saved ten years ago. think that past grace permits permits us to give up on our pursuit of holiness no the way that that you received grace at salvation is the way that you'll receive grace now it's by humbling yourself God gives grace to the humble we do it God's way we are in constant need of God's grace and we don't simply need grace at initial salvation and then you know we're kind of exempt. We can float into the clouds on flowery beds of ease. Now we're in constant need of grace. And so if you're going to bear fruit, if I'm going to bear fruit, then we must rely on the grace of God without presuming upon it. We must rely on the grace of God without presuming upon it. The grace that saved you is the grace that you still need. You still need that grace every day. I need that grace every day in order to bear fruit. So rely on that grace. Trust in God for it. So here's several principles that I think we can draw out of the text, but I don't think that's Paul's main point. Again, the main point is connected to the sentence, the, 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 the main uh, subject and verb of the sentence, which is found in verse 3. We give thanks. And so the main application is... That's my symbol. my my signal. I need help. Um, The main application is thank God for the gospel's effect in the lives of other believers. Thank God for the gospel's effect in the lives of other believers. Here we learn from Paul what it looks like to give thanks to God for other believers. Here's his main point. I give thanks to God for you. And part of the reason that he does that is because he knows God is glorified in it but also because he knows that they are encouraged by it. And and we sometimes as I began, sometimes are too quick to point out the faults of individuals. Like we're always thinking about the problems and how much of a trouble it is to us. And when we do that, we fail to see the transforming power of the gospel. We fail to see the forest from the trees looking at all the individual problems when we should be looking at the bigger picture. Now that doesn't mean, again, we don't become polyanic and just ignore all problems. But we should be able to do what Paul is doing here. And that is to recognize the work that God has done in the lives of individual believers and as a whole and be able to give thanks to God for that person and that congregation. I mean, Peter was a man who denied his Lord. And yet, Jesus did not give up on him. He recognized the transforming power of the gospel in him, his true confession, and he continued to use Peter for the advance of Christ's work. And again, the Colossians are not without flaws in their thinking. They're starting to adopt and and believe some of these false teachings, and that's why Paul's writing. So they're not without flaws. But Paul does not neglect to thank God for them, for the fruit that he has seen or heard about. And I would say to, to us that, that we certainly are without not without flaws either, right? We can all think of a few things, if not a laundry list. But we should not neglect to thank God for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, for those who are part of this assembly. Let me give you two practical ways that you can apply the main theme of this text to your lives. I'm not sure if I, I do have those. Okay. Number one, thank God for individual believers in this church. Paul effectively said in verse 3 that he thanks God whenever he prays for them. So is that something that you can say about our church in general or about individuals in our church specifically? Do you regularly thank God for believers in this church? Do you regularly thank God for the faith and love that spring from the hope that is in Jesus Christ in individual believers' lives? When you pray for that person, do you thank God for them? Let me challenge you this morning to make that a habit, to thank God for the believers in this church. Sometimes, I can assure you, it's going to, to flow naturally because God has... Graciously allowed them to be an encouragement to you or to, to, to do something that, that benefits you. And so in that case, it's almost hard not to praise God for those things. But there will be other times when the first thing that comes to mind when you think of that name are the past sins and conflicts that you've had with them. And yet, don't allow those things to cloud the view of reality of the transforming power of the Gospel. That people have been changed because of the Gospel. Not completely. It's not going to happen until the next life. But but there is a change. And you see it. And you see the fruit. So we should be praising God. We should be thanking God for other believers. And then secondly tell fellow believers that you're thankful to God for them. Tell them that you're thankful to God for them. And you probably won't know the encouragement that you are to other believers when you tell them that you're thankful to God for them, unless someone has already done that for you. Has anyone ever told you that they thank God for you when they pray for you, like Paul's doing here? And if so, how much of an encouragement has that been to you and your faith? Is that a part of the culture of this church? And when we come together and talk with one another, say, listen, I I thank God for you. I was talking to God this week about you, and I I was thanking Him for... And if it's not a part of the culture of this church, then how is it going to start if not with you? Now let me be clear, you can't do this second practical application without doing the first one, right? You can't just go around saying, hey, thank God for you, when you never pray to God about that person or you ever thank God for that person. So make sure you do practical application number one before you do practical application number two. But how much would the life of our church change if we were to increase in our prayer and thanksgiving to God for one another? And then we actually told people that we did that. Sometimes we we don't like to do this because, you know, I don't want them to think that I'm doing this with some kind of ulterior motive. I don't want them to think I'm trying to get something out of them. And so sometimes we, we skirt the responsibilities that we have from God because we don't want to be perceived in the wrong way. But that's not the best way to go about obeying God's commands, is it? God tells us to do something, or if there's an expectation or an example to follow, like we have here with Paul, then instead of finding excuses for why we shouldn't do it, why don't we start following the example and and, and apply ourselves in that way? How much different would our church be if we were all praying and thanking God for one another and then telling each other that? One final point that goes along with these two, is that, that we should do the same for believers outside of this church that we are called to love? Now, we clearly have a special responsibility to believers in this church because uh, by virtue of the covenant that we have through membership. But are there other believers in other churches that you should be thanking God for and encouraging? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe you've gone your whole life and you haven't told another family member that you thank God for them? It might not be a part of this church, but another church. What about churches like First Baptist of Sterling Heights or or Grace of Waterford, who we partner with regularly to do various activities and events? Are there other believers in there that we can be praying for and encouraging and telling them that we're thankful for them? What about First of Troy or Faith of Warren or other Godly churches in our area that are promoting the gospel. What about our missionaries? Think our missionaries could gain any benefit? Could they grow in their faith because we thanked God for them and told them, listen, I really thank God that you're working on behalf of Jesus Christ in our church to advance the gospel. What kind of influence could you have for the cause of the gospel if you simply put into practice these two applications? Thank God for believers, specifically, and then tell them that you're thankful for them. Believers ought to thank God for fellow believers and then encourage one another by telling them of their great gratefulness to God for them. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. Lord, we we won't ever tire of knowing about the truth of Your love for us, that, that You secured our salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in the Gospel. And Lord, You will bring us all the way till the end. You will finish the work that You started in us And so we praise You for our salvation. Lord, I thank You for the encouragement of this text that reminds us of our responsibility to love one another. And one of the ways that we show love to one another is by praying and giving thanks to You for them. So we pray that You'd grow us in this. Lord, I'm thankful that You have put our church in this place so that we can gather regularly and be an encouragement to one another. I'm thankful for the believers here who have been encouragement to me and and who have modeled this very practice. They have come up to me in specific times and and have encouraged me in this way. And I pray that you would help me and each person here to to be better at that and, and to be more faithful in the way that we pray for one another. Lord, I pray that we we would see our responsibilities to do the same for other believers outside of this church, other believers whom we love. Give us the strength to do that. Lord, not for the sake of our own merits or so that people will think well of us, but so that you would be glorified in the strengthening of their faith and the honor of your name. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.